0: Hi. This is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page.
1: Hi everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast. I'm delighted to be joined here again in the studio by our regular panellist, scientist, psychotherapist, Prudence Deer. How are you, Prudence?
2: Hey, yeah, not too bad, actually. Thank you, Dr Nick. Can thank you, I, thank you for getting up. yourself
1: down from Ballarat this morning. I did it in style this morning.
0: <laughs> well, hear more in about that. In the car.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> sitting across from us is academic, political scientist and master of the radio knobs and buttons, panel veto.
0: <laughs> I haven't done anything in style this morning yet. Uh, prudent. Uh,
1: everything you do behind the panel is... is, uh, is oh, uh, standard, so, yeah. <laughs> so I hope your coffee's hot and you've got somewhere comfy and warm to snuggle up and listen because you are not going to want to miss a moment of today's show. In the second half, we have none other than Australia's most famous doctor, one... Norman Swan. You may have heard of him Um, and he will be joining us by Zoom to talk about his new book, So You Want to Live Younger Longer. I can't wait for that conversation. And before that, we have here in the studio another wonderful Australian doctor, also a paediatrician, Professor Harriet Hiscock. Now, for over 20 years, Harriet has been working, amongst other areas, on childhood sleep. (laughs) if there's an issue that pretty much every parent has had to deal with, it's sleep. And Harriet and her crew have just released some new books that are based on extensive research and proven to help. So we'll be talking to Harriet soon. But before that, it's... That sounds like a Doberman to me. What have we got today? It sounds like a disgruntled terrier to me.
0: No, no, we had Cocker Spaniel.
1: Cocker Spaniel. Spaniel. There Yes, beautiful dogs. Escape artists, I think. Well, this is the dog park shout-out here at Triple R. We love all animals, from aardvarks to axolotls, but you don't don't see many many of those those in the the park. park. (laughs) So dogs it is. Uh, Today it's the turn of twins, Eloise and Beatrix. And their two beautiful black labs, Gertie and Gilbert, (laughs) Uh, they were down at the beach playing with my dogs. And, well, the twins weren't alone, which is... Probably just as well because there are only six, <laughs> but their grandparents are there to make sure that all was well. So it's a triple R dog beach shout out to Eloise and Beatrix. I think you want you a new segment though, don't you? Well, she? yeah.
2: My journey in today, I thought we should probably have a pothole shout out for <laughs> all of those on the roads. I hit a really big one just outside Bacchus Marsh on the uh, on the freeway, and yet another one on Bell Street. So. I All want right. to know more about them.
1: Okay, which councillors of Bell Street and Backers March are listening? It looks like the B pothole shout out today, get those fixed. Uh, well, after Eloise and Beatrix, we now have some new.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
0: Um, My attention was caught by uh, news uh, a couple of weeks ago now, but um, forecasting that in the new government's um, budget that they're going to hand down in October, Mm -hmm. that they will, for the first time in Australian budgetary history, include a chapter on well-being. Oh, yes. And... um, uh, th- th- you know the idea of well-being being a, a, a measurement um, for a country is not new in mm-hmm. many sense there's uh, people will have heard and we've spoken about th- spoken about it um, many times on this uh, show about the world happiness index yes um, uh, Bhutan kicked it off and and it's it's got its contentions the UK's done it um, more, most recently and perhaps most relevantly uh, in Australian context New Zealand did one mm-hmm. um, um, in 2019 we
1: see say- one, you mean a happiness index? Yeah. Of
0: some kind. So New Zealand um, got uh, they put five measures in their budget. They were um, child poverty, um, uh, well-being for um, Maori and Indigenous peoples, um, transition to low emissions support for physical and mental health and lifting productivity and wages through innovation. Um, and so those five measures were um, linked to this concept of wellbeing. And um, Jim Chalmers, Dr. Jim Chalmers, one of 11 PhDs in our current uh, parliament, by So the proper way. doctors. Proper doctors. <laughs> um, well, this guy's political scientist, so probably not. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, So but one of 11, that's pretty cool, eight out of 175. Um uh, he's uh, going to hand down a budget in October um, and he's going to include this chapter on wellbeing. He hasn't said what those measures will be just yet. He's just forecasting that it's going to be the case. And I reckon, you know, um, I reckon we go with this, uh, go open-minded into this. Um, it's certainly picking up on um, Robert F. Kennedy's famous speech just before he took a bullet um, that uh, GDP measures everything except what's worth living for. And, um, <laughs> yes. and uh, you know, and if, and if he runs with that line of thinking, there could, could be some value out of it. And certainly, um, conceptually, it's the, the idea that um, the economy serves people rather than people serve the economy.
1: So this is not an area which I have any expertise or um, background in at all. So let me ask you a rookie question. I'm assuming that there's no definitive scale of well-being that applies worldwide because different countries would have different aspects of well-being that apply to particular communities. Is that correct?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, um, defini- definitions are always contentious, right? So, um, but we might mm, might even put it to Dr. Swan later. You know, is longevity a measure of of well being in a in a society?
1: But what do we actually anticipate from this budget? In that case, is it obviously budget equals talking about money. If we're including well being for the first time, are we anticipating millions or billions of dollars being thrown at um, projects that previously haven't been?
0: Yeah, right. So th- that's going to be the. Interesting- thing Is it going to be rhetoric, you know, that we do want people to, um, when they're asked, you know, to on, on a scale uh, – what do you call that pain scale, Dr Nick? the ouch scale. The ouch scale. Um, you know, on a scale of one to five, how happy are you? Um, five, you're delusionally uh, blissful. Zero, you're in mis- total misery. Um, we want people to be answering somewhere closer to five, and those surveys are done all the time. Um, and so that might be one measure. Now, how do we achieve – more people saying that they are happy with their lives, um, that's up for grabs. One of the major obstacles is going to be this concept of cost of living, as opposed to the concept of cost of lifestyle. And we've seen election campaigns that um, often this cost of living gets um, morphed into cost of lifestyle. So instead of thinking costs are going up because my electricity is going up, but you're in a McMansion with five different heaters on during winter, um, that's, is that a cost of living or is that a cost of lifestyle increase? Um, and so what measures the government might take, whether they're policy nudges or not, um, will be interesting to see.
1: I suspect from reading Norman's book that one of the things that uh, he would be likely to say is that if we threw massive amounts of money at early childhood, early childhood development, early childhood education, and Professor Harriet Hiscock sitting next to me has just yeah. raised her thumbs, which is an effective gesture on radio the time. But uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, but that's something I'll ask Harriet about when we get her on air because mm. um, I think this is. Undoubtedly, an area every bit of research that I read says that dollars invested in early childhood development and education repay 10, 20 fold later in life. And mm. I suspect with well being, uh, that would be certainly true.
0: Yes, yes. It's just all too rare that logic informs budget decisions. <laughs>
1: well, it's the time scale, I guess, is one of the problems, isn't it? You invest yeah. in early childhood development, you're not going to be around uh, to reap the benefits of it 25 years later when people say, oh my goodness, that was That's a good right. policy yeah, you well brought on. in, you retired person, you.
0: <laughs> well, we, 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 some of us in the room, probably all of us maybe, I don't want to presume anything, but we'll remember Bob Hawke in his campaign, 1980, um, saying no child will live in poverty by the end of the century. And um, yeah, he's since, um, de- well, well, he's since declared that he got it um, vocab wrong. No, no child needs to live in poverty. What he intended to say, he did a bit of a Neil Armstrong and got got a bit tongue-tied. Um, but uh, you know, so 1980, we're talking 40 years ago, 42 years ago, where he said no child uh, will live in poverty by 2000.
1: Prudence, I guess, as a psychotherapist, you would have a view on what should be in a well-being budget. More money for psychotherapy well, yeah, perhaps? Well
2: <laughs> absolutely, you know, mental health care support. I mean actually just thinking, I mean I was just thinking there what you were saying about, you know, uh uh childhood development. And I mean yes, I think we in many ways can agree with that. But also it's is that postponing addressing some of these issues? It's like it's putting all the pressure on the next generation to be like Happier, um, oh, yes. as if that's sort of not our responsibility to address here and now problems.
0: As yeah, well, um, well it, it's interesting. What I'll be paying attention to is whether they actually use happiness as an index, yeah. right? So well-being needs. and happiness. Then was a temptation to think they're the same thing, but I reckon happiness is perhaps not as useful as maybe some other measures
1: well thank you for that panel b so that's a fascinating question and perhaps we'll come back to that later in the year when the budget's been handed down and we'll see what measures were brought up <laughs> um, fairly shortly we'll be coming out with our first guest in studio professor harriet hiscock and she'll be talking to us about her new work and publications on books on sleep and children which will be just amazing she'll be coming up in just a minute
3: you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform
1: Delighted to welcome to the studio, Professor Harriet Hiscock. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Thank you so much for coming in. Now, I could spend most of the rest of the show introducing you because your CV is extraordinary. You work for the Matil- ah. Murdoch Children's Research Institute. That must. How do you say that? Or do you have to say the whole thing all the time?
3: Oh, no, we say MCRI after MCRI, a while. Yeah. Yep.
1: So the MCRI, um, you've worked in all sorts of areas, mental health, sleep and uh, children's sleep for over 20 years. You've just published some new books about that, which we'll come on to in a moment. But I just want to dive back to what we were just talking about, about well-being and the budget, because I guess this might be an area you have views about.
3: Look, I think it's an absolutely fabulous move if, um, as Dr Panelbita says, we can get this into actual action rather than rhetoric. And I think, particularly through the pandemic, I saw a lot of children with rising anxiety because they had no connectedness anymore. They'd lost their connection to school, to friends. And I think part of our well-being is connectedness um, to community and family. And there were some silver linings for some communities where they did come out in the pandemic and actually get to meet each other and talk to each other face to face and... You know, how do we foster that sense of well-being as opposed to money as a sense of well-being? Because we know that money doesn't buy happiness.
1: So if you are the one person sitting by Jim Chalmers' left side uh, and advising him and saying, Jim, I want a lot of money put into...
3: (laughs) Uh, Reshaping the way we fund healthcare so it can become truly integrated with social care as Medicare is no longer fit for purpose. <laughs> there you go. That's my, my next ambition for the next 20 years. Okay, so you
1: just wanted to revamp the entire funding of Medicare and I think system. we can
3: trial some different models of funding to bring about better support for families, particularly in the first 1,000, 2,000 days of life.
1: Mm-hmm. excellent concept yes so jim i hope you're listening because there you are there's the answer you've got it all sorted out for october now just get down with the spreadsheet and the budget and work it all out for us um well okay we might come back to that but um we, we're going to move on because the particular trigger for getting you into the studio today was your publication of some new books now sleep and parents and childhood i think would be very close to top of the list for just about every parent um you've been working on this for 20 years uh, and now published some five or six books. Um, yeah,
3: six books, and it really came about because I've followed the very traditional, you know, scientist pathway of running randomised controlled trials of um, sleep interventions in babies, in school age children, in children on the autism spectrum, in children with attention deficit disorder. But a lot of that work ends up in journals that no parent will ever read. Mm-hmm. So we really set about saying, "Oh, how can we make this more accessible to Australian parents and grandparents and children?" So. We've brought these six books to life and each one of them is a different sleep strategy for children. And we've also created audio books that families can access for free and made them available through libraries as well. So we're trying to help every Australian child sleep a bit better.
1: At what age group are your books aimed for?
3: They're three to eight years of age um, because I think that's where you can start to really have conversations with the children about empowering them to change their sleep. And if they don't want to do it, they ain't going to do it. <laughs>
2: Prudence. <laughs> well, look, I'm sure. I, I, I've, I think I came across one parent who actually said they had a child from a baby that just slept perfectly. But I think <laughs> that was <is> so <laughs> exceptional. <laughs> All parents experience, you know, sleep difficulties with their kids. Um, But what constitutes, I suppose, a problem? How do we know when it's a problem as opposed to this is quite normal, don't worry about it, mum and dad, it's fine?
3: That's such a good question, isn't it? And I think partly it's a problem if parents perceive it to be a problem and then you've got to um, ground that within what is typical. So, for example, in a baby... It's normal to wake up overnight and feed, and they might do that every three to four hours, and that's not a problem. But if you've got a three- or a four-year-old and it's taking more than an hour to get them to sleep or they're waking up many times overnight and it's impacting on them... And it's impacting on their parents, then it's it's a problem. Yeah.
2: Yep. So there is that element, obviously, that that it's causing stress for the parents. The parents are not getting enough sleep themselves, which means they're grumpy and they can't yes. quite cope with their work yes. or you know and child care. That's
3: our slug dad and monster mum book. Yeah, yes, that's right. And I
2: mean, <laughs> but I guess different parents have different views. I mean, some parents will will co sleep with their children yep. for quite a few years, and it will not be for them necessarily an issue. Yes, so exactly. That's Is that not a problem or are we... Are they leading to children who are perhaps too dependent on the parent? Uh,
3: Not necessarily. So I think it is very much, you know, um, horses for courses. And one of the things we very much say in our books is um, you've got to pick what's right for you. And so if you are co-sleeping and you're happy with that, that's fine. But maybe when they're getting to 10, 11, 12, they're starfish across the whole bed, you can't get any sleep, then it's time to do something about it. eh? It's time to move on. Yes. Yes.
1: I I do remember talking to an American sleep expert who was extolling the virtues of co-sleeping and how wonderful this was for brain development and social development and so on. I said, yeah, but what do you say to the parents when you've got an 18-month-old or two-year-old and they want them out of the bed? He said, oh, I don't do that bit, <laughs> which I, yeah. thought, I thought was abrogating his responsibility <laughs> and, just a touch.
3: Yeah, and we certainly know that, you know, for some children, if they're not sleeping well, it does. And we've, our research has shown this impact the parents' mental health and well-being and their ability to function the next day. So, yeah.
1: so let's step it through a little bit by age groups, if that's okay, because you you yep. Mentioned your books are for the three to six year old, and I can imagine a parent of a three
3: uh, to eight, but sorry, yep. three
1: to yep. eight years, but I can imagine a parent of a three month old or an eight month old saying, Oh my god, I can't wait till then, you know, what do I do now? And what I normally say to parents up to around about six months is there are no rules, it's, uh, it's work it out with your baby. But tell me, if we talk about those first few months, do you have advice or recommendations? Oh,
3: it's absolutely go with the flow for the first three months of life. You know, the, the babies are just coming into the world, they're sorting themselves out, you're sorting out your, your relationship with your baby. We know that crying peaks at six to eight weeks. That's called sort of colic, for want of a better vo- a word. Um, and then that gets better. And that, that's whether you're in Melbourne, Africa, London, we see that peak. So it's really just going with the flow, responding to the baby's needs. And then after six months of age, If sleep is an issue for you and it's impacting you and your ability to function as a parent, that's when you can start to think about strategies. And we do have our podcasts on the website as well and that covers babies through to teenagers so people can listen to the podcasts.
1: Okay, so if we're saying the first six months go with flow, no absolute rules uh, kind of whatever feels right this yep. is where I'm saying listen to your baby, babies are great at telling you what yeah, to do. Yeah, they are they? Yes. <laughs> but you're saying uh, after about six months there are things we can do, this brings us into the contentious area <laughs> of controlled crying
3: <laughs> it,
1: uh, so do you have yeah. advice for the, say someone's got the seven, eight, nine month old that's just driving yep. them nuts um, so this is before we get onto your books which are for the three year olds but stepping through the age groups for those older babies but uh, still under a year old what's the advice for those parents? Well
3: this was my very first randomized controlled trial a long time ago for my doctorate and um, I saw parents who perceived their child's sleep to be a problem and um, we saw three times the rates of postnatal depression symptoms in these mums compared to mums who didn't see their babies as having sleep issues. So there's a strong correlation there. And what we did was we offered them um, three different options um, because they wanted help. So one was the controlled comforting coming in and out of the bedroom. The other one was the camping out technique, which is a bit more gradual and gentle. You put a camp bag next to your baby or your child's bed. You might pat them off for the first few nights. Then you might sit there and talk to them or sing and then you slowly move yourself out of the bedroom over seven to ten nights. And the third option was something called parental presence where you stay in the baby's bedroom for seven to ten nights straight and you use your voice to calm them. And parents chose what technique they thought suited them and their baby and what we saw was that um, follow-up, you know, two and four months later was improved sleep in the babies, reduced postnatal depression symptom in the mums and at two years on we still saw that as well.
1: So if people want advice in more detail is that available on the website? Yes
3: yep so if you go to sleepwithkip.com that's our website Um, that's where you can listen to the podcast and we have one particularly on babies as well.
1: Okay, so we've got the little ones all sorted out so they won't need it. <laughs> uh, so is that the same sort of dye supplies through to the three rolls before uh, we get starts, on to the books? It
3: starts to change a bit and the beauty of children is they do change and they do develop and um, so one of the most common problems we see in toddlers is um, when they come in and out of the bed multiple times at the start of the night. We call that curtain calls. I want to drink. I want to tell you something. I want to go to the loo. You know. And um so for that we use a different technique called the bedtime pass. So you, you make a little pass out with your child and they can use it once at the start of the night. And they can come out and tell you that something or have a drink or go to the bathroom. Then they give you the pass back and then they stay in their room for the rest of the night and you reward them in the morning.
1: Yes, that, and there's that. one of the books is devoted to that, isn't it? it? Is, the old bedtime it is. pass punch. I absolutely love that concept. Yep. It was new to me, so did just talk us through in a little bit more detail. You, did you draw up some sort of nice looking ticket or something? Yes,
3: yep. So you can make those, and we'll have them on the website as well. But you make that with your child. It's it's like remember when we used to go to nightclubs? You got the pass out. It's exactly like no, I that.
1: I was too busy at home
3: <laughs> revising <laughs> my you? medicine. Yes. yes, sure, yeah. <laughs> so it's that idea of a pass out, and the books are really about empowering children to want to do things differently. Because as I said before, if they don't want to change, they won't change. And I've seen that time and time again in my work. So this is maybe if I can do this, they start to feel a bit of you know, confidence and independence and it boosts their self-esteem.
1: So just to go through that in more detail, yep. this is for what sort of age, roughly? Three, three
3: onwards. Three onwards. Um, three to eight, certainly, um, the bedtime pass works for.
1: Yep. So I love this curtain call idea. So if you've got one of these children who's always coming back in, say, but I just need a wee and I just need to do this. Yep. and I just, um, the, the pass is to say, all right, you prepare this in advance and they can bring that out for one request exactly. on one occasion only. Yep. And once that pass has been handed in,
3: that's it for the night. And then you need to think about a reward in the morning. So for younger children, that can be stamps and stickers. And I often say after four stickers, they get a lucky dip. But we know rewards work for around about two weeks and then the novelty wears off. And by then you hope that you've started to shift the behaviour. Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the other approaches that you use, which I I felt probably is better for slightly older kids, is the sort of using of imagery, of like taking them to a safe place where which they choose through the conversation you have with them. But that's the beach, you know, the beach in the bedroom, which I thought was a really good kind of technique for a child to learn that would probably keep them in good stead for the rest of their lives. Uh,
3: Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, we do see a lot of children even at that young age who are just warriors, quite worried about things in general Mm -hmm. And that's that whole visual imagery, relaxation and the beach being a really common um, thing to use. And I often see primary school kids with anxiety-related sort of insomnia. But um, my tip there is I tell them to practice this um, before or just after school. So Mm -hmm. get home from school, lie down on the floor, take your shoes off, close your eyes, go through your visual imagery and relaxation. Because if they do it just before bed and it doesn't work, then they get stressed that they can't get to sleep. But I find if I give them permission to do it after school, they start to naturally transfer it to just before sleep time anyway, and they do it without the stress of it having to work. Right. But I think we can do it as adults too.
2: Absolutely. Although, I mean, there is that kind of adult perspective that I thought reading these books are really good. But there were a couple of things that kind of worried me. Now, yep. for example, with things like, um, you know, where you, where kids fantasize, they can often actually, and I did when I was a kid, get quite scared by what might be to an adult a quite okay concept. Concept and they, I mean, you know, the fairy story things that often have sort of elements in yes. them that can be woo. So, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe for some kids, a marshmallow puffin. So, this is one of the things to sort of explain strange noises. You know, yes. Strange noises yes. in the back, in, yep. in your bedroom. Oh, it's a bunch of elephants in the closet trying to get their dance shoes on. Now, that seems quite funny to many of us, but some children, maybe they would actually get a bit scared by that. Yeah,
3: and I think that's where you've got to use your judgment as a parent and read the books that you think are right. For your child, yeah, and read difficult. them with your child, and see and, their reaction, and see their right. reaction, and help them interpret it. Yeah. And say, "This is all a bit silly, isn't it? And noises are normal, but it's okay. You're safe. We're here. We're here in the house. It's all right." Mm. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, so there's a, a question come through on the text line, which is a, a, I suspect a very common one from parents. Said, so "What if your child's used up their past but you they're, they're scared in their bedroom, mm-hmm. they've used their past and they can't come out because you know they've done it once, but they're still scared?" I mean, yeah. I, I imagine this would be a, quite a common question from parents. So
3: I think if they're scared, and you really think they're scared, as opposed to using "I'm scared" as an excuse to come out, yeah, <laughs> because they're two different is. things. If they're really scared, I would be doing more the visual imagery relaxation approach or and the camping out with that rather than going straight to the bedtime pass. So the bedtime pass is for children who you know actually are pretty okay to go to sleep they're just testing the limits of your boundaries by coming out multiple times
1: and it's that's an interesting point is and I remember my first child getting growing pains and uh, they they can genuine pain that can be quite severe for kids and uh, that led him to a bit of a cuddle with mum and dad and a few nights later I realized he was having in inverted commas growing pains again (laughs) but it was very obvious as a parent what the difference was between the previous pain which was real and this which was I'd like cuddle with mum and dad. Yeah. So uh, it was important to head that off at the pass early on. What you're, what you're saying is that there are different books with different techniques here. So while we're talking about individual techniques, it doesn't mean you just whack that on and apply it to every child.
3: Exactly. And there is a sleep check that parents can do on the website to answer, you know, a few questions about their kids' sleep, and then we suggest books based on their answers. But I think it is about um, reading the short description, thinking, is that the right thing for my family at this point in time and, and for my child?
1: And remind us that website again.
3: Sleepwithkip.com. <laughs> Friends.
1: Yeah, look, you did write,
2: um, at the beginning actually mention, um, you know, kids with ADHD or autism, and I suppose, you know, that whole group of what we might call special needs um, have, I believe, much higher incidence of, of sleep issues. Um is, is, are these approaches here suitable, like for a young child with autism? For Look,
3: example? they can be, and, and you're right that sleep issues in, in that population are sort of 50 to 70 percent of children. So, in our trial with sleep with children with attention deficit uh, problems, we used exactly the same techniques and they were effective. We modified them for children with autism. Mm. So, we used a lot more um, pictures to represent what was going on and what we call social stories. Another right. big issue. Children with autism often have is they're awake for two or three hours in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And if you go to the website and listen to our podcast on children with autism, we have a technique there where which we call bedtime fading, where we temporarily set their bedtime quite late, um, like an hour or two later, so that when they do wake up naturally overnight, they're really tired and they're more likely to go back to sleep quickly. And then we just... Ease that bedtime forward by 15 minutes every few nights. And that's for the children I see who are really awake for three hours in the middle of the night who are on the mm. autism spectrum. So there's a few tweaks, but that's more on the podcast.
2: Right, okay. Yeah, and I was glad to hear that they're both podcasts and that they're sort of audiobook versions because I was wondering you know, about, well, what, what if a parent can't read for some Absolutely. reason? Absolutely. Know, they might be vision impaired, for example. <laughs> but, um, yes I mean that's that's quite important, isn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely. and we've had fabulous actors um, and
3: actresses do the audio books so they're they're fun
2: <laughs> and the other one, I suppose, just on that um not all kids have two parents. But the books do kind of rely on oh dad and mum you know in the story. Do you have alternate story books? Look, I think that's something we need to
3: think about bringing out, and we need to also look at the rainbow parents, you know, and families as well, um, and have that. So this is a starting point for us. I think that's a really good point, Prudence. A good starting point. Yeah.
1: Um, I I can't recommend these two highly because they're beautifully illustrated. The stories are just. Fabulously done. Um, they will so appeal to kids and adults alike. Um, fabulous titles like Pick Your Own Nose and <laughs> Has Dad Joined the Circus and that's sort a of thing. And, and there's a lot of farting in there and the sort of thing the, that yes. appeals to kids <laughs> and adults <alike. clears throat> um, And uh, you can uh, get the podcasts, you can get the audiobooks, you can buy these online. And there's, a, there's even a discount code, isn't there, for Triple R listeners? There is, Nick. Yeah, Oh R R fifteen, I believe. RRR15. RRR15, fifteen. Triple R-R-R fifteen. Fifteen percent off. Yes. Yeah. So I always, I always feel bad when I get to these pages and say, do you have a discount code? I think I don't. Does everybody else have a discount code? Well, if you're a triple R listener, now you have one. <laughs> so the website again is SleepwithKip K-I-P. Dot com, um, And if you can't find it, just um, go to your favourite search engine and the Mil- Murdoch Children's Research Institute, uh, KIP, K-I-P, it's the clue to it. But sleepwithkip.com is where you will find it. Um, Harriet, it's been just lovely to talk to you. Um, I I can imagine that this will make a huge difference to people. Um, Thank you for coming in and we'll look forward to talking to you again in the studio another time. Thank you for having me. (laughs) That was Harriet Hiscock. Um, That that was just fantastic and even in the quiet of a radio studio hush, I can hear the sounds of a stampede as parents everywhere rush to get her
0: books. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
1: Now, it's a great privilege to have on Zoom uh, Dr. Norman Swan, who will be well known to people around Australia, uh, has worked on the ABC forever, ran Radio National, the host of the, um, the Health Report since 1985, CoronaCast. Uh, and Norman's recently released a new book. So, welcome to Triple R, Norman. Um, thanks for having me on, Nick. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, bef- before we talk about the book and so on, I just want to go back about uh, your training because most people will know, but you
4: are a qualified pediatrician and, uh, and worked in clinical medicine just, for just some to time you there. I trained in pediatrics and I've got my British qualifications. But in Australian terms, I'm not qualified. I never got my Australian ticket. I think if you've got the British qualifications, I
1: I count that as very well qualified. (laughs) But you also, I I read that you were also interested in pursuing a career as an actor.
4: Yeah, that's what I was wanting to do when I was at uh, high school. Mm. And I chickened out and went
1: and did medicine. Well, it looks like you did reasonably well despite that, so well done. Uh, let's, let's dive straight into the, the book, which has only just been released. And congratulations, by the way. It's called So You Want to Live Younger Longer. Um, I want to go straight into um, an area that you focus on a lot, in my view, absolutely correctly, which is around diet. Um, And you focus on the Mediterranean diet, which you mentioned on many, many occasions. Uh, I think sometimes people get a little confused. What actually
4: is the Mediterranean diet? Well, the first thing I'll say is the book's a lot more than just diet, which which you acknowledged and uh, there's plenty more in it about supplements and things and other Things, other interventions to keep you younger longer, but the Mediterranean diet has it's best thought of as a dietary pattern, and the dietary pattern is lots of vegetables of different kinds. Mm-hmm. Probably not a lot of fruit, but you know, more dominant vegetables are dominant. Um, there's about nine elements to it. <clears throat> You're not you don't eat very much red meat, maybe once a week. Mm-hmm. Your protein comes from Legumes like chickpeas or lentils, uh, fish, maybe a little bit of fowl as well. Um, you cook with um, mono unsaturated fat, so it's low in saturated fat. Uh, the carbohydrates are complex carbohydrates rather than refined carbohydrates. Which means one sort of thing. Yeah, and it's best. And, and in fact, when you start going through it, There's not a lot of difference really between the Mediterranean, what I've just described, and say the Southeast Asian diet. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that the Southeast Asian diet tastes different and looks different. But in fact, those elements are around about the same. But the thing that gets missed when people start talking about Mediterranean diet and that's really important is cuisine. Okay. So you can, look, if your choice is raw food, versus buying processed food in the supermarket, raw food wins, every time, you know, hands down, no question. But there's and this is a lot of this research comes from Melbourne, Deakin University, um, and particularly a researcher called Tanya Todas and Catherine Itziopoulos when she was there before she moved to uh, Western Australia, a powerhouse of research in this area. And what and before before then, Karen Karen O'Day and what they've shown is how you cook makes an enormous difference to this. So, when you actually, so it, it's not just the elements of the diet. So, for example, when you what they've shown a Deacon is a whole tomato is pretty good for you, or a whole capsicum. You just bite into it, chop it. It's even better because that starts to release antioxidants. And it's when I talk about antioxidants. I'm talking about the substances that reduce something called oxidative stress, which is like biological rust in the body. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the processes that ages your tissues and ages your brain. And in theory, but it actually cheapens these substances to call them antioxidants because they're really bioactive compounds that help cells to talk to each other, help elements within the cell to talk to each other, and basically turn your aging profile into a more youthful profile. And you can't buy them over the counter in the pharmacy; they just don't exist. Mm-hmm. And the so when you chop a tomato, you get more of these released. When you sprinkle um, extra virgin olive oil on a chopped tomato, it's even better. But when you heat that say under a grill gently, whether it's capsicum or tomato, that releases incredibly potent mix of bioactive compounds. And again, you can never dream of buying in the, in the in the shop so the, the basis and remember when we talk about the mediterranean diet there are so many countries and so many cultures around the mediterranean we're really talking about the the one that's been best researched is the greek diet mainly based on crete uh, that's where it was first described and what we're, when you look at but there is the basis to a lot of middle eastern and mediterranean food which is the, the sofrito mix yes. which is extra virgin olive oil chopped onions, garlic, tomatoes, maybe carrots, and that cook cooked together on a moderate heat produces a very important and then you add herbs to that. You're you know talk to any chef, um, they'll tell you that cooking is chemistry. <laughs> yes. and and there's chemistry in that pot. So one of the things I
1: really want to highlight about what you've just said um, is uh, a couple of things you've mentioned, adding the ingredients together, which releases things in a way that doesn't happen if you just have them raw or (laughs) try and buy them in a capsule, and then cooking gently. um, And for people who haven't yet read Norman's book – All of the information that he gives is evidence-based. There are over 40 pages of references for the scientists among you who really want to tease out uh, where the science comes from. But that's one of the things I love about it. It's uh, it's very powerfully evidence-based information. Um, There's so much that we need to talk about beyond diet, but I just want to focus on a couple of things. You mentioned a couple of things about restricted eating as well. Um, What's, in the end, your take-out message for people
4: listening about the role of restricted eating in diet these days so there's two common things that people do one is called time restricted eating which is where you know crudely you could skip breakfast but you confine your eating to after midday towards late in the day and it's it's been used mostly as a way of calorie restriction um as is the five two The Michael Mosley thing, where you Mm -hmm. two days at 500 calories and rest there. Now, there's not a lot of evidence that if your aim is to lose weight, that these techniques are any better than just portion control and just getting on a sensible diet. I mean, if you eat the Mediterranean diet and you stick to that, you actually won't put on a lot of weight because there's so much in the way of complex carbohydrates in there. So that's the one thing... So when you look at all these, sub- let me just back up a little bit. When you, if, if we're talking about living younger, longer, um, the one thing that's known to work in the laboratory, in animals, in most species, and there's evidence in humans, is what's called dietary restriction. So that's And it's really calorie restriction. And it's about creating a calorie gap in your life. And it's not known in humans how big that calorie gap needs to be, but a bit of a calorie gap. And both of those things, in theory, should do create a calorie gap. There are a couple of problems, and I think I'm not blaming Michael Mosley here. I think just people misunderstand; they take it too simplistically. The five, for example, the five two diet. Well, you, let me go back. You asked about time restricted diet. Yeah, it probably helps you to lose weight. Uh, probably no more effective than anything else. The one problem with time restricted eating is it may shift your body clock a bit, and in some people that might be a good thing, and in some people it might not be a good thing. And I talk about the role of body clocks being really important in staying younger longer. With the 5-2 diet, the problem here is, and this is the work of Professor Luigi Fontana at Sydney University, on whose work, by the way, Michael Mosley based his early books. What Luigi has found is that when you're on the, there's two things, three things with the 5-2 diet. One is the five days are not a get out of jail. They're (sighs) you've actually got a, re- a really high-quality diet on your five days. Otherwise, you could end up malnourished to some extent. The other thing that happens on the five, two and other similar diets is that when you reduce your calories, your body adjusts. So your basal metabolic rate, in other words, the number of calories you burn just sitting around like you and I talking like this, goes down. Yes. So you, re- so you reduce the calorie gap by being on that diet. And so just by being on that diet, in a in a, in a in a period of time, you will lose that calorie gap benefit. So what you've got to do, and again, this is Luigi's work, is you've got to put moderately intense exercise on top. So the exercise forces the calorie gap. <clears throat> and that starts to work. Now, what these, so what's many of the anti-aging supplements that are around at the moment, NED booster, resveratrol. Um, maybe even metformin, the anti-diabetic drug, which many people will have read about. Um, All uh, rapamycin and rapamycin analogues, which I talk about in the book, fascinating story, all of them are trying to mimic dietary restriction without having to cut back on your eating. That's what they're all trying to do. They're trying to mimic the biochemical effects And the really interesting thing about these, I'm not talking about vitamin supplements, which are mostly useless unless you're on a vegan diet, and you're taking a bit of vitamin B12. No, what I'm talking about here are are the anti-aging supplements like NAD boosters and so on. In theory, they should work. So it's not a fraud. Um, In theory, they should work because in animals, when you give them to mice, for example, the mice live 20 or 30% longer in good health. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Having a younger body, and living in good health to later years, which, by the way, we're already doing. Now, so in theory they should work, but when you try them in humans so far, they don't. Yes. Clinical trials haven't been well done and so on. And what this is, um, what's going on here is that we are much more complicated than a mass, and I talk a lot about something called homeostasis in the body. So Everything that your body does there's something to there's a yin and yang. your blood pressure goes up, there's something to bring it down um you 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 have sudden acute stress um and your adrenaline goes up. there's a parasympathetic nervous system to bring it back. hormones go up, bring it back, your immune system and so on there's everything's in balance, and often we look at the things that are bringing you back as negative, but in fact they're not they're just about balance. And I, I like the, I like to talk about the analogy of the Tower of Pisa. So imagine the Tower of Pisa when it's just built. It's straight up and down. And that's the youthful homeostasis. <clears throat> now, what happens with the battering of life, which I talk about a lot in the book, which is quite complex, the tower starts to lean. Mm-hmm. So instead of being straight up and down, it leans and it leans towards an aging profile. And the body gets used to that lean. And so when it gets poked it reacts to that poke, but only but in that leaning context. It's not that it goes back to this vertical, it stays leaning um, and it goes forward. So when you give, so first of all, we don't know the right dose of these boosters or these anti-aging compounds. There's evidence that low doses work differently from high doses and high doses may not work that well. And usually what we do is give very high doses. So it's like poking the bear. So you poke the body with any uh, an infusion of NAD boosters and the body says stuff you and pushes back and so you don't get the net effect and what may evolve over time because I mean, there's, no, there's no evidence for this yet is multiple do- you know, multi- using multiple anti-aging factors in incredibly low doses maybe only once to fortnight so that the body doesn't get used to it and you slowly poke it back but at the moment <clears throat> they, they don't work because it's too much to ask of one substance and we might be being too you know, wool in the China shop with what
1: we're doing. So I think if we can summarise all that very complex information, it is detailed um, over many pages in the book about the use of supplements and so on, that probably at this stage popping down to the pharmacy and hoping to get longevity out of a pill is not going to work. Let's talk about what you've described that does work. Um, One of the things I'm always talking to patients about, about almost every single condition, is exercise. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what you've found in the role of exercise and living younger, longer.
4: So exercise is really a complex activity, acti- activity, as is the way you eat and the way you cook and the way you are in the world. Let me just back up a little bit on this, because one thing I do talk about in the book is the fact that your brain runs the whole body. And we and you know this, Nick, from your clinical practice. When you, you have a difficult situation and you've got somebody who's depressed in front of you and in pain, when you start to talk to them about their depression or the way they are in the world, they get quite angry often because they think you're telling them that it's all in their head. But the reality is our brains are tuned to the environment, our relationships, the way we are in the world, and then the brain gives physical messages to the body about what to do. And this is all complicated stuff. And so diet, eating with friends, exercise are all really important. So it turns out exercise has multiple benefits. So we think of exercise as... Increasing your cardiorespiratory fitness in other words the f- efficiency with which you transfer oxygen uh, in your lungs to your blood very important very important for longevity and healthy longevity we think of muscle strength incredibly important. One of the fastest routes to frailty as you get older is having weak muscles so both of those are incredibly important, but the other thing that moderate to intense exercise does is that it helps your body to throw out the garbage. Now, and this brings me, so I know it's all complicated, but it's all interlinked. There's this market before COVID of people getting on a plane, going to Germany for stem cells. Yes. Because they're told that the reason you're aging is that your stem cells, the cells that produce new tissues, are old. Which is true, they are old. So go and get an infusion of young stem cells. Now, what happens is, I talk about this in the book, is that your stem, when you put young stem cells into an older person they actually become old. Mm. They don't stay young. And then there's also this market for giving young blood blood transfusions from young people into older people in the hope that it will will, um, rejuvenate them. So here's a fascinating study, which I talk about in So You Want to Live Younger Longer. They attached attached older mice to younger mice, their circulations. And the hope was that the younger mice would rejuvenate the older mice. The opposite happened. Yes. The older mouse clapped out the younger mouse. So it's not that the young, that young people have something magical inside them that keeps them young. You know, the, the eternal fountain of youth is something's happening in older, as you get older, that keeps you old. Yes. And one of them is when you're young, your cells turn over, they're born, they live they die and cleared out of the body. That's the natural cycle. As you get older, the dead cells don't quite die. They hang around, and they hang around like grumpy old neighbours who are miserable, and they call the cops if you've got a dinner party (laughs) that goes on plus 10, plus 10, and they exude secretions, which are ageing secretions, lots of different kinds of them, and they they are really toxic and perpetuate ageing or maybe even speed it up. And One of the things that a a, a bioactive-rich diet does and exercise is it helps to throw out the garbage. It helps to clear out some of these female cells.
1: And I'm sorry to interrupt, Norman, but um, time is doing what it does, particularly when you get older. It seems to go much more quickly. (laughs) And there's so much more that we should be covering because there's everything in the book around um, sleep, about positivity, about the effect of early childhood intervention. It's all in there in this book. So you want to live younger, longer. Um, all I can do is recommend you pop out and get some because you've just had a little taster of it this morning with Norman. Uh, Norman, I don't know how you've done this. You, you you've published, so you think you know what's good for you last year. You published this book this year. You're doing CoronaCast. Um, You're getting any chance to sit back and smell the roses while you're doing all this
4: yeah yeah no I had a break recently <laughs> so we had a month off coronavirus and I went off and had a holiday which was wonderful well, I'm so very I'm pleased to hear it
1: I want to ask you one final question because there was a little throwaway line in your book which said that you were a surgical resident under the flight path to Heathrow was that Charing Cross Hospital by any chance no, West, West Middlesex Hospital. Ah, West Middlesex, okay. So I was at Charing Cross for several years back in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, Norman, it has been such a privilege to have you on air. I'm sorry we didn't have more time to go into in more detail. But so you want to live younger, longer by Dr Norman Swan, rush out and get it. You've got a little taster here today. You'll learn a heap more if you buy the book. Thank you again, Norman, and lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me on me. That was Dr. Norman Swan, a voice that probably everyone recognised. If you didn't, the book is available now uh, in all good bookshops, so you want to live younger longer.
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform
1: on a show we've had this morning Professor Harriet Hiscock talking to us about sleep. We had Norman Swan talking about how to live younger, longer. What did you make of all that panel Vita?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting um, stuff. I I love it as a topic, as a a broad topic um, because it goes to so many things about us as humans, you know, going way back to the philosophical memento mori, remember we're going (laughs) to die, through to um, more pragmatic things. But I've I've been following this um, discussion around considering ageing as disease and um, I'm really curious about that. That cells aspect of things. He touched on um, intermittent fasting, uh, time-restricted eating uh, as, as a weight management thing, but I think more interestingly it's about um, cell renewal and autophagy and uh, the markers in the telomeres that tell us about our biological age.
1: Yes, and there's a lot about that detail about telomeres in Norman's book. I, I, I thought this was fascinating because he talks about how restricted eating has been shown to increase lifespan in yeasts, worms, flies, rodents and monkeys. I thought, oh, okay, so it's got to work for us. But sadly, the jury is still a bit out for mm. human beings. Um, so it seems that time-restricted eating can be quite effective in helping people with weight loss, but perhaps not so good just for making us live longer. But um, Unless
0: the autophagy kicks in and the cell renewal happens, yeah. Mm.
1: So much for us to learn. So is that, uh, yes, Absolutely, but I thought, I, I mean,
2: that, that clar- I think there was a good clarification about what the Mediterranean diet there is and it's not about red wine and olives. It's actually about, you know, getting those high sort of antioxidant kind of recipes together and I think that's that's quite informative in yeah. itself
1: and I think very much it's about how you mix foods together, how you yeah. cook them and this slow cooking idea releasing things that work very well um, well I'm going to go back and get into the kitchen give it a try, it's yeah. time for us make to make wrap up time. <laughs> uh, time to say thank you for our wonderful guests, Professor Harriet Hiscock Dr Norman Swan and to the multi-talented Dr Nick Dean Prudence here and panel beater
0: Hi